All right. Thanks, everybody. Sorry for the late start. Thought I'd start with a wee story. Forgot to mention this before. So there was a roast of Christopher Lawless at a pork fest recently. And um, I was told, unfortunately, that it was canceled by the organizer who had some trouble with um, the management. And uh, so I show up. Uh, just expecting an evening of chatting and so on. And then I find out, hey, the roast is back on. And you're going up for 10 to 15 minutes to try and make jokes about a guy you don't really know that well in front of a sadly sober crowd. It was a dry pork fest. Uh, I say sadly sober only for the point of view of trying to make people laugh, not from the fact that it's sad to be sober. So, I, you know, this is, isn't this, you know, every sort of person's nightmare. Go up and be funny in front of a crowd of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people with no preparation and <laughs> very little warning time. And so I was running around asking people, hey, do you know Christopher Lawless? Do you know Christopher Lawless? And nobody did. And so my first joke was going to be that he really is just a collective figment of our imagination, but he's too big for that. So um, I went up and <laughs> I literally had nothing. I had nothing. Yeah, and I watched a couple of other people. And this is the closest I've really come to being religious is to pray to the gods of comedy to favor me with a kind joke or two. And anyway, I got a little bit of an inspiration and there it was. I was um, able to come up with a few good jokes, but um, that was interesting. That's a sort of real test of, of confidence, you know, like, oh, Miko system, please come up with something funny. No pressure. <laughs> I'm sorry that we're not better prepared. But it was uh, quite funny to, um, to come up with stuff more on the spot, which was uh, really um, exciting. I haven't had any dreams about it before or since. So I'm sure it wasn't too stressful, but that was uh, that was an interesting moment in public speaking. I just wanted to mention that. Anyway, let's move on with the listenership. Um, again, I'm sorry for the late start, but um, uh, I'm all ears if we have a caller or a question, or if you have questions in the chat, please, please too. Oh, yes. Uh, in, in the Indian accent, hello, Steph, please drive. First, I'm plugging a router for one minute, then plugging it back in. <laughs> yes, that's what we should be doing. Exactly. I, I, I'm sorry that you can't find the any key. <laughs> have you tried putting in your password <laughs> what is it uh, back in the day oh this is way back in the day um, the, the stories were going the rounds of help desks that somebody kept complaining that their five and a quarter inch bo flu uh, bo uh, boot floppy disk just kept not working and turned out that they kept it pinned to the metal cabinet by the computer with a large magnet and they just had a problem that uh, it just didn't uh, <laughs> it didn't work these things can happen my friends. It's like when the coffee holder breaks. All right. So uh, do we have any callers at the moment or is it time for Randall, Randall Chatty Fest? Uh, no, we do have some people on the line. Uh, if you would like to start, uh, come on up. ST. What, me? Oh, I have to ask some questions now? You don't have to, have my friend. It's really, really up to you. Okay. Um, well, I guess I wanted to ask you what, I mean, because I heard some stuff that you have said on feminism and democracy, and I was wondering what your view is on the fact that the feminist movement um, gets, like, females the vote, um, and that together with the um, acknowledgement that democracy is um, pretty much the system that restricts the power of government the least because people will always vote for the government to do more things, but voting will never work to re re like restrict the government. 
So if you have more people voting, doesn't that mean that the government will do more? And isn't that like a bad thing? Like, what are your views on that? Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree. There's a Hoppian argument that says that in many ways, aristocracy is better than democracy because with aristocracy, you're planning to hand the kingdom to your children. So you're going to have more of an interest in its long-term, the maintenance of its long-term value, as opposed to if you are, you know, a one or two-term president or whatever, you don't really care about the long-term health of the system. And of course, it is to your interest to pay as many people off as possible in order to maintain your power. I think, you know, one of the challenges that I think is really significant around state money in intellectual endeavors is that the purpose of a movement, the purpose of an intellectual movement is to make itself obsolete in many ways, right? So, I mean, the purpose of abolitionism, the purpose of getting rid of slavery was to disband itself, right? The the purpose of trying to gain equal rights for minorities and for women, the purpose of that is to is to end itself, right? And I think that's really, really important. Uh, The problem with state money, I mean, one of the many problems with state money for intellectual exercises or intellectual movements uh, like uh, like anti-racism, like um, feminism and so on, is that there's no terminus. There's no end point, right? It doesn't commit its own beneficial harikari because it has achieved its goals. So when you have state money you set up a continual flow of resources towards particular intellectual groups. And those intellectual groups may very well have incredibly just and righteous things to achieve, like equality for women and minorities. The problem is when those things have to a large degree been achieved, and it was in the early 60s that it became illegal to discriminate on the basis of of gender for employment or for education or other things. Well, when you have achieved those things, but the money is still flowing... What happens? Well, um, the movement doesn't end once it's achieved its goals. It then starts to go further and starts to look for things like positive discrimination, right? Affirmative action uh, for for women and affirmative action for uh, for blacks or other minorities. Uh, this is hugely problematic, of course, right? Because it's collective innocence and collective guilt. Uh, saying that we should have affirmative action for women because in the past they were denied opportunities would be is exactly the same as arguing that women should have two votes now because women in 1910 didn't have any vote. But this is ascribing morality to a concept called women or blacks or whatever. And it's, I mean, it's not good. It's not good. So my, my concern, you can see this tipping point. You know, there's a lot that is right and just and fair about the drive for equality under the law. And where inequality under the law exists, it is something that needs to be opposed which is why I'm very much for, for want of a better phrase, equality under the law for children, right? You, you can't hit your boss, you can't hit him, your employees, you can't hit your wife, you can't hit your husband or your aunt or your uncle or your politician. You can only hit your children, right? So we're just looking for equality under the law for the most helpless and dependent in society. And that's great. That's wonderful. But if there is no private source of funding for intellectual movements, they tend to go too far and become corrupted because there is no natural terminus, right? So once women have achieved legal equality, then we would expect the funding for the groups driving for legal equality to go down, of course, right? In the same way, you and I don't donate a lot to anti-slavery movements anymore. And that is essential because what it does is it releases the, the passionate, the moral, and 
the intellectual and the great communicators. It releases them to do other great good in society and to look for other great deeds and other great wrongs to right and so on. But because the government money keeps flowing into a sphere where equality has already been achieved, it then starts to demand more. It has to invent new problems and create new issues and so on. And this is how things get corrupted. And uh, I would love, <laughs> I would love for the funding for Free Domain Radio to dry up tomorrow. I think that would be fantastic, because that would mean that um, I could go back to being a novelist and a poet and a business person and, and work in those fields because the world had been had become sane and rational and philosophical. Uh, but uh, I certainly do look forward to the day where a philosophy show does not need to be funded or doesn't need to be um, uh, supported in a way. But uh, that's you know <laughs> not about to happen. So I hope that uh, I hope that helps. Does that answer any of your questions? Yeah, yeah, and that was mainly where I was coming from. Um, I don't think that uh, there will ever come a day where you don't need like intellectual uh, discussions going on to remind people of what sort of things they should be supporting and stuff. Uh, but I wanted to say that like um, a very important thing is that equality under the law is very different from like, general equality. Because if you uh, strive for general equality, then you have to sacrifice equality under the law to get it, and then you'll get none of the law. Um, uh, and like, for example, like uh, shadow discrimination for hiring. Um, I think I've heard you talk about this, but if you haven't, then uh, I don't know. But like when, um, when an employer discriminates and he doesn't want to hire, like say women, for example, uh, it's because he doesn't think that women will will be as productive in that sort of job. So if you make it illegal for him to discriminate, then it, that's going to create a lot of troubles because then maybe he'll uh, he won't pay uh, his male employees as much, or maybe he just won't um, interview a woman because he knows that if he has one and then fires her, then he's going to get a lawsuit or something. So a lot of these policies end up achieving. Um, all of these policies are not achieving the exact opposite of their intended goals. So, yeah, I think that's interesting. Um, um, uh, yeah, like my question was, was mainly coming from, from the Hopian perspectives. I read um, Democracy, the God that failed, a book that uh, Hopi wrote that is very interesting. And in there, he argues that because democracy is a force of de-civilization, um, the more people who vote, the worst is. And so um, while it was bad that males were voting and females were not, like the solution wasn't to get females to vote, but to promote the votes from uh, males and eventually promote the state, right? But that's not what happened. Yeah, and so we, we move from the correction of historical injustices through the extension of, I would argue, UPB or, or common law, to then the concept of restitution, which, you know, I, I think comes dangerously close to bribery, right? So this is sort of what happened um, to, to some aspects of, of mainstream feminism uh, with some great success, which was that uh, they began to argue for pay equity laws. Um, and so they, they no longer wanted the market to set the rates for male or female or individual employment, but they wanted to set up laws and rules to ensure this and, and basically to get pay raises for women by saying, well, this job is kind of equivalent to this job, which is, you know, fundamentally, it's central planning, uh, it's it's communism, it's obviously violent. And, um, and there is, you know, I mean, there is, there are challenges to hiring. I mean, if we have a traditional family structure, which a lot of people are still aiming towards, 
there are challenges with hiring women. And anyone who <laughs> who doesn't understand that is is missing some basic biology. Most women want to have kids, and most women will take some interruptions in time to have their kids. And after they have their kids, they will have restrictions on the amount that they can work because you know we've got this ridiculous system. Which is, you know, if if, if feminists, I think, re- oh, yeah, and I, I consider myself a feminist, and I, I love to advance the the, um, the economic equality and opportunities for women, and I, uh, especially, I mean, it's always been the case, but in particular now that I'm a dad, I really oppose gender stereotypes and so on, and really think that it's uh, a lot of uh, uh, a nonsense that gets piled on on kids about, you know, cute and pink and <laughs> all that kind of stuff, but. Uh, I mean, you know, one of the things that feminists could really fight for if they really wanted to help women in the workplace, the most important thing that they could do is fight to get the school day to match the work day. I mean, isn't it completely ridiculous that you have a school day that back when I was uh, going to school, it was nine o'clock until 3.15. I think it may be a little bit earlier now or whatever. But I mean, can you imagine trying to set up a private school when people work nine to five saying, oh, yeah, no, we, we turf your kids out on the street two hours before you can come and get them. I mean, that school would be out of business in about eight seconds. In fact, it would never even get any funding because it would just be such a ridiculous business model. Um, <laughs> you know, it'd be like, it's a car rental place. You know, you rent your car from Los Angeles and you have to return it by a hard-to-find cactus somewhere in the Nevada desert. Uh, that would just be bad comedy. And so uh, if women really wanted to, if, if feminists or, or women, people interested in women's rights, if they really wanted to to help women, then they would find a way to get the school day extended. Uh, but of course, nobody wants to try any of that sort of stuff because the moment that you try that kind of stuff, you really do run into the aggression and the violence and the entitlement of the status system. And people don't want to get close to that because it, it's pretty humiliating to see the gun in the room. So, Right, right. I totally agree with that. And while we are on the subject of schooling, um, I guess I wanted to ask, what do you think about uh, like compulsory schooling? I'm guessing you're not for that. But like, I think that uh, beyond the fact that kids um, can be legally assaulted by their families in most um, countries, uh, there's also the fact that uh, they are forced to attend these indoctrination camps set up by the state. Um, and whether they're public or private doesn't really make that much of a difference because the private ones get their, um, like they have to teach the stuff that the state says. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the teachers have to be the same. The teachers are almost always part of the union and they have to teach, teach the same crap curriculum. Well, I mean, when you put compulsion into a voluntary relationship, it's no longer voluntary, right? So we, we put compulsion into, into borrowing and it becomes theft, right? We, we put compulsion into labor and it becomes slavery. We put compulsion into sex and it becomes rape. So it is a kind of slave mind rape <laughs> theft of childhood to force children into schools. And nobody's, nobody's interested in the education of the children. I mean, they're interested in the indoctrination of the children, of course. The state is very interested in that. But what, what the children are is uh, uh, crops, right? They, they are livestock, they are crops, they are resources to be held hostage in return for money. Uh, that's really all it, all it comes down to. And we see that, of course, in public schools. We see that with uh, national debts. We always see that in, in wartime, of course. Uh, children are 
uh, resources uh, to be domesticated, to be shaped, to be molded, to fit into the existing society. And any children who don't are ostracized, attacked, mocked, drugged, expelled, uh, humiliated uh, to the point where they, you know, they have to fit into society. Uh, in, in any relationship between strong powers, there always has to be a lubricant. There always has to be something that's going to give way. And usually it's the youngest kid in a family or whatever. It, could, it may not be the youngest kid, but it, if there's you know, a lot of fighting in families, you know, a lot of conflict between, say, the mom and an elder sibling, then usually the younger sibling is the one who gives up their needs and just becomes the peacemaker and, and the social lubricant, so to speak. And in our society, if children were respected as full human beings, as full human beings, then our society could not function even close to the way that it is currently pretending to function. And that is, I mean, if you look at when women in sort of the 16th century or the 15th century were, you know, cattle breeding sows, that's how they were treated. They had very few legal rights. Uh, and, um, you know, they were there basically to, to make children and to make dinner and to keep house. And if you look at how society has changed once we have recognized that women are full human beings, society has changed immeasurably. And if we can conceive of or begin to think about the argument that children are the fullest of full human beings in society, they are the ones who have the first rights, the most rights, the most necessary rights, the deepest rights, they need the most consistent rights, they need the greatest protection, they must be afforded the greatest opportunities for choice. Right now, we've got it completely backwards. Right now, children have the least choice and adults have the most choice. It should be the complete opposite. We should be encouraging as much choice as humanly possible and extend as many rights of morality and protection and respect to children first and foremost, to children first and foremost. But right now, the exact opposite is true. Our children's needs are not even consulted in society. I mean, they're not even, they're not even viewed as, as entities whose needs could even remotely be consulted. I mean, how many times did you ever go to school and get a form about how, you know, what you would like or, or how well things would go? Um, the amount of aggression that goes on in the home compared to that which goes on outside the home uh, is completely disproportionate. Uh, children are not allowed to vote, but they are sold off to bribe existing voters and are responsible for the principal plus interest that accrues in, when they grow up. Uh, children did not have anything to do with the existing systems uh, that, that have killed their economic opportunities and put them a trillion dollars in student debt uh, and um, robbed them of uh, job opportunities and, and advancement and growth and have them stuck living at home until they're in their 20s and so on. So the idea that, that we would look at our society and say, aha, we have children. Now, whatever moral rules we have, Whatever moral rules we have, whatever good we think we can or should achieve as a society, let's focus it on children first. Forget everyone else. To hell with everyone else right now. If there's a right called freedom from violence, okay, children first, children first. If there's a right to freedom of association, children first as much as it can be achieved. If there is a right to self-determination, children first. If there is a right to equality, children first. If there is a right to freedom from beatings or verbal abuse, 
children first. And we don't do that at all. All of the corruption that goes on in society can only survive because we refuse to extend basic humanity to children. That it can even be a debate about whether children can be hit or not is beyond shocking at at a very fundamental human level. The fact that there are so many vociferous defenders of hitting children is astonishing, absolutely astonishing. And the future will look back upon us as lower than troglite orc-based Lord of the Flies barbarians for even having such a debate, especially with so many people on the pro-hitting side. But just imagine, just imagine what it would be if any kind of ethic we thought of, any kind of virtue we thought of, any kind of human dignity and respect that we thought of, we thought of how to maximize it for children, first and foremost. What if we designed a society? (laughs) What if we designed a society by saying to kids, hey, what do you guys want? What would make you happy? What would make you happy? But that doesn't mean, of course, we're adults, right? When children, you know, they're still learning a lot about consequences and so on. So I'm not saying that they then become the new dictators. But what if freedom from violence, which we all understand, husband hits his wife, just slaps her, bam! She calls the cops, he goes to jail. One time. Even though she's an adult, she chose the relationship and she can leave at any time. Parent hits child. Well, that's good. That's discipline. That's good parenting. That's making sure they're not spoiled. We're not even, most people aren't even that ambivalent about this. So uh, this is my basic, this is really all my show ever comes down to. Uh, UPB is about kids. The gun in the room is about kids. It's the hand on the ass. Right? We can't see the gun in the room in the state because we can't see the aggression in the room in the, in the family. We have enormous trouble extending UPB, which is a very obvious concept, extending UPB because people are very guilty about UPB violations with their kids, whether those UPB violations are uh, hitting them or circumcising them or yelling at them or abandoning them by throwing them in daycare all week. This is why people get so reactionary about UPB, because if UPB is true, the first place we need to think about it, the first place we need to apply it, and I would argue really the only place we need to apply it, because it all flows from there, is to children. But when you have 80 to 90% of parents still hitting their children, well, UPB is going to be a pretty tough nut to swallow, because the conscience is UPB-fueled, and UPB reaches into the mind, through the heart, up the ventricles, <laughs> through the spine, and grabs the conscience and drags it from the muck and throws it spinning with fire into the sky. And people do not like the sore and eyed glared of their UPB-based conscience. So UPB is a very emotionally difficult thing for people to process. Yeah, the I people agree. I know who process it best are the people who have either never used or have abandoned the use of aggression in their own lives. I'm sorry, you were saying? Yeah, I was saying that I couldn't agree with all of that more. And that um, I definitely agree that in order to have a what we would call a completely healthy society, we need to have uh, respect for children and, and like parents treating them 
uh, in the same way that they would treat their friends or their spouses or whatever. Um, and that's not the way it is, and it's not the way it's ever been done, really. But I think something interesting to consider is that right now a lot of the um, freedoms that are taken away from children are not taken away by the family, which, and a lot of those are, but a lot of, are, a lot of those are taken away by the state. And um, this wasn't always the case. The things that now the state claims to be helping children when they force them into their indoctrination camps, um, they, they claim to be helping children when, like for example, if a child lives in um, leaves an abusive family, uh, then the state will uh, find the child and bring him back to the family, right? And only afterwards. Uh, they will uh, conduct some sort of investigation to decide whether the amount of abuse that they were um, imparted was uh, <laughs> enough to guarantee taking them away from their family. And well, it's, but this is a re- this is a really tough situation. It's a very tough situation. Uh, and look, I'm God knows six million light years away from any kind of legal expertise. But it's really tough, right? So if if a kid is is let's say some eight year old kid says to a teacher, "I'm being abused at home." What happens? Well, I guess the teachers, you know, are going to call the child protective services or whatever, who are going to come in and do an investigation and so on. But it's really tough because if the child is being abused uh, at home, then they are in an environment where that abuse is sustainable. In in other words, they are in an extended family who is not intervening. They are in a neighborhood or a community or a church or or uh, a a cultural group where that abuse is not being opposed. In fact, it's probably being either explicitly or implicitly supported and praised. And so what are you going to do with a kid when the parents are abusing and the extended family knows of the abuse, I'm sure, uh, or at least sees the effects and, and doesn't do anything about it? Are you going to take, it, are you going to take the, the child from the abusive parents and give it to the abusive aunt and uncle? Well, I mean, I'm not for sure abusive, but likely. I mean, it's, it's likely because they, you know, they're, they're so desperate. The kid is so desperate, he's not going to the aunt and uncle. He's going to some teacher. So where do you, okay, do you take that kid out and then you assign that to some, some other family who's willing to take it in? That, that's all very difficult, very tough, very tough stuff. Uh, it is, uh, you know, and I, <laughs> I mean, I get emails about people saying, you know, you got to do more to show how terrible child protective services is and so on. And, and maybe they are. I don't know. I have another research, so I don't really have any strong opinions about it. But I will say it's, it's a really, really tough thing. It's a really, really tough situation to deal with. As somebody asked in the chat room, well, how would emotional abuse be prevented? Well, <laughs> you would get brain scans, of course, because you can see the effects of emotional abuse on brain scans. You can see the effects of deprivation, of, of isolation, of uh, physical abuse. I'm not saying you can tr- you know, track it down to, well, this word is imprinted upon this part of the brain. But in the same way, you can, you know, when we take my daughter to the doctor, she weighs and makes sure that my doctor is doing well. And of course, if my, doctor, if, if my daughter was undernourished, then there would be some significant inter- intervention that would be necessary. Um, but we don't scan the brains of children, which is what we should be doing. We should be scanning the brains of children to look for signs of abuse. You, you can't hide the effects of abuse on the mind of a child. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a perfect smoking gun. Um, I'm sure that the technology could be improved. But you see, <laughs> this is not where we are as a society. Where we are as a society is we reserve brain scans for older people. 
we don't look and say, okay, well, um, we know the prevalence of child abuse in society is, is, is distressingly high. So we are going to, you know, roll out an educational campaign and say, look, we're going to look for these signs in the brain. And, you know, I could be completely wrong about this. This is my understanding of the science. So don't take anything I say as any kind of gospel. But you, you would just, you know, run the kids through a brain scan. And if you found the signs, right, shrunken neofrontal cortex, enlarged amygdala, whatever was going on, that would be signs of abuse, then you would go and investigate further. Because the physical properties are there. And this would be the case, of course, uh, with children who have this, quote, ADHD or ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, all this nonsense that's made up. You would do a brain scan and see, well, is there, is there a brain problem here? And if there is a brain problem then the first place you would look is the way that the children have been parented or taken care of. That would be an intelligent way. If we focused on children as the most important recipients of our moral concern and care and consideration, then that would be the case. Yeah, I so agree I with that. that uh, it will definitely have to be taken care of by some entity other on the state. And what I was saying is that um, in the way the state uh, deals with these things right now, uh, let's say some 10 or 11 or 12-year-old child um, runs away from their family and finds some way to either sustain themselves or find someone who is willing to take care of them. Uh, well, the state prevents that. It makes that illegal. Uh, it charges the person who either gives the child a job or, or takes care of them with kidnapping and takes the child back and gives it back, gives uh, them back to their parents. Um, and this is something that didn't always exist. Um, it's something that is being done because uh, the state claims to be helping children uh, when really all they're doing is uh, giving... Uh, oh, the, the state... This, look, the state has no interest in helping children. Right. If the state was interested in helping children, uh, then the, they would uh, privatize schools immediately or at least get rid of the teachers' union and make sure that... Right. I mean, the, the government has no, no interest. I mean, I remember when I was a teenager, this is sort of what just popped into my mind reading some of the comments in the chat room. I think I've mentioned this before. When I was, I think, 13 or so, I was having some awful fight with my mom, and my mom called the cops, and the cops came and cornered me in my room and gave their mouth-breathing, you know, heavy-lipped lectures on the fact that there's a generation gap and I need to listen to my mom and she's, you know, she's trying to do the best for me and so on. They didn't ask my mom anything, and they certainly didn't ask me about whether I was experiencing mental torture, uh, uh, physical abuse, um, hunger, uh, abandonment. Uh, yeah, well, they didn't ask any questions. They just lectured me about how great my mom was and how I really needed to listen to her uh, and, and all that. And of course, of course, I mean, what else would they do? That's the easiest way to deal with the situation is to lecture the child who is straining under 10 elephants' weight of dysfunction and abuse and just throw one more elephant in there. But, but I mean, how else, how else could it be? I mean, everyone in my social circle knew that things were seriously bad in my house. Um, I came to school with holes in my clothes and unwashed uh, and, and hungry <laughs> all the time. Never did any homework. And it was very clear uh, to anyone with any eyes to see that I was very intelligent and was not applying myself in any way, shape, or form. And in, in three different 
countries, three different continents. Not one person ever asked me how I was doing or what was wrong. I don't think that's changed. I mean, this is 35 years ago. I don't think it's changed. And so this is what we need to change. This is what we need to change. I was told when I was a kid, I mean, you see bad things, you've got to intervene. You've got to ask. You've got to do things. You've got to give some support to the victims. And uh, I really took that to heart. And I also remember, since I believe that morality is basically memory, I remember what it's like to live in a world where you can be abused and no one will say anything. And people will, in fact, blame you for the consequences of, the, of that abuse. Right? So the, the kids who go home to healthy, happy, peaceful homes, they do their homework and they come to school. They're fed. They're, they're, they're rested. They're calm. And they do quite well on tests. And so they get an A. And I struggle to get a B or a C because I'm trying to be in a swimming race with a goddamn anvil tied to my neck and sharks biting. And yet we're all judged equally, right? There's no consideration called, well, this kid is sleep deprived, this kid is malnourished, uh, this kid is, uh, is not even getting basic, um, uh, basic uh, self uh, hygiene or, or, or self-care. Uh, this is a, obviously a very dysfunctional household and so on. Well, I mean, and this, I mean, anyway, I won't, I won't sort of get into it, but, but even when uh, things got explicit when it came to my mom's mental illness, there was no, no intervention from, from doctors, from professionals, from psychiatrists or anything like that. So this is where we are. You know, we, we, we step around child abuse. Nobody asks about child abuse. Nobody asks the children how they're doing. And I, look, I can understand why. I mean, people who will abuse children will make your life difficult if you help. If you help stand up for the, for the kids. Well... That's, that's too bad. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, but it's still time. It still needs to be done because the world will not progress morally. It will not progress benevolently. It will not progress charitably. It will not progress towards freedom until we start taking care of the children in our midst. And the state stands in because neighbors and extended family, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters are not stepping in. And the reason for that is... Well, probably quite obvious, but um, that's what needs to happen as a society, and that's what I've been encouraging for, for many years. It's all about how the children are treated, and we can ignore our child abuse. We can bypass child abuse. We can turn up the stereo if we hear someone yelling at a kid or some kid being hit. But that is the society which we then forge in our future and which our children will then have to live in. All right. Well, I think we've had a good, good old chat about that. Thank you, uh, thank you so much. But uh, if you could, uh, you know, great, great, great questions, great comments. But I think we should move on to the next caller, if you don't mind. Okay. Uh, if you hear some rumbling in the background, that's my bulldog snoring. Okay. Because you're right. guaranteed three things with a bulldog: is they snore, snort, and fart. And I can't no share the farting with you, so you're going to get the snoring. <laughs> anyway, Steph, my first question. Wayne. For my first question for you is, 
there was there was this rather uh, handsome fellow, really tall forehead, um, that w- that posted a video online, and uh, he was really, really adamantly trying to get people out to vote in favor of one specific uh, political candidate down in the U.S. And uh, of lately, this very same, like I said, handsome fellow, really tall forehead, um, has been saying of the same political candidate that uh, he's kind of glad that he didn't get elected because he thinks he's kind of dangerous. Wait, and, wait, you're talking about me, aren't you? I can tell. The forehead thing gave it away. And I'm just wondering, what has changed to change your opinion of Ron Paul? Well, nothing has changed, I don't think. Um, do, do you mean the How to Elect Ron Paul video? Well, there was one time where you were online and almost going to tears, pleading with people to show up at something where you were trying to get Ron Paul elected. And then I saw something just recently where you were saying that you thought Ron Paul, while one of the better candidates, was not the right person to be elected to president now, and that he was actually kind of a dangerous person, and... Well, sorry, let, let me be clear. I, I, I want to say that Ron Paul is a dangerous person. No, I, I, don't think he's, I don't think he's a dangerous person. I mean, I think he's a very smart guy, very well-educated, has achieved Did more in a variety of spheres. Of I, but or? no, I mean, I think that having a libertarian in, in, in power for the next cycle would, would be a complete disaster, a complete and total disaster. Um, but no, I, I haven't, uh, I did receive a lot of questions about that video. I'm, I'm happy to pull the curtain back and tell you my purpose in it, if, if that helps. Go ahead. Well, my stance as far as political action has has always been, I think it's a bad idea. I think it's a way of distracting people from what they really need to do in their lives, which is to bring peace. Uh, You know, there's (laughs) there's so many people we know in our lives who are spanking their children, who are yelling at their children, who are not spending time with their children. We can spend the rest of our lives just sorting out that stuff and making the case for peaceful parenting in our own personal lives. Uh, and that, that I think, is – that's the tortoise. That's the tortoise that's going to win the race. Political action is the hope or the, the belief that somehow society can be fixed from the top down by some magical internet constitution, Jesus coming in and solving everything for us. And this, Uh-oh. I believe, is a, is a delusion. Uh, not that's just a way you. of avoiding uh, Oh, there he is. Sorry. Sorry, Steph. You cut yes. off for a bit there. So I think that's uh, I think it's a it's a big problem, uh, and I think it is a way of distracting us from the real meaty moral work that we need to do in our lives, which is to deal with uh, wherever we see aggression in our own personal lives. Now, I but but that having been said, I don't claim that I've got any kind of magical crystal ball. I don't have a palantir to the future, and so uh, but what I really want is for people to be committed. Right? <laughs> I think that commitment is key. If you are doing the right thing. Being committed will really help. If you're doing the wrong thing, then being committed will also really help because it will help free you from it. So my goal with that video was to say to people, look, you have to really be committed to this, which means put things in, uh, on the line. Put things on the line because this stuff is very important. This is war and peace. This is taxation and slavery. This is debt and serfdom for children. This is very important stuff. And... I was trying to give people some of the tools that they could use if they were really committed to political action to put it on the line and and to really push their relationships. Um, you know, people a, a lot of times will just kind of drop a few idea nuggets into the mix in their relationships and so on. I think it's too late for that. I think we've really got to push our relationships uh, to say, look, this this stuff is serious. It's really important. This is the future 
uh, of, of the world. This is the freedom of humanity we're talking about. And so my goal was to give people what I thought were the best tools to help them convince other people. Now, if these tools had been instrumental, I'm not, I'm not saying that they were about to be, but if the advice that I had given had been... Oh, uh, Steph, your uh, connection is burbling off. No, yours is too. I don't know if... Uh, um, yeah. I'm sorry, I'll just have to, I'll just have to oh. keep going. Maybe this just come out in the recording. Suddenly we're clear. <laughs> yeah, but if, uh, if my... Like, according to my theories, according to my theories political beliefs are formed in early childhood. And these are not just my theories. There's a huge amount of science to verify this. Political right? So in my are formed early? Political beliefs are formed in early childhood through your relationships with your authority figures. And if this is the case, then politics is an effect of childhood. And politics, if it is an effect of childhood, cannot be solved without self-knowledge, without self-examination, without therapy, uh, which I'm a huge fan of. Uh, without journaling, without dream analysis, without introspection, without sentence completions from John Bradshaw and Nathaniel Brandon, without reading Alice Miller, without reading Jung, without, you know, really, right? And so if I'm wrong about that, then giving people really powerful arguments to change their political beliefs will work. If I'm right about that, and if the science that I subscribe to is right about that, then if you attempt to change people's political beliefs without encouraging them to pursue self-knowledge, you will fail. And so this was um, an experiment or a suggestion to, you know, I'm perfectly willing to, to accept that I may be wrong in, in the science, may be wrong in this formulation. It was a way of saying, look, go and put everything, all the moral energy, all the moral focus you have on the line in your relationships. If those relationships change and people accept what you're saying, then... I'm wrong. Fantastic. Then I think political action could work. But this is not what happened. What, what happened was people didn't pursue that advice. Or if they did pursue that advice, they ran into a brick wall in their relationships and qu quickly dropped the argument. And so this supports what seems to be what certainly philosophically true and very strongly um, supported empirically, that people's political beliefs are an effect of their early childhood relationships or lack thereof with authority figures and therefore, you cannot change people's political beliefs through political argument. You cannot change people's political beliefs through political arguments. It's like trying to argue someone into being taller or shorter. Or like trying to argue someone into voluntarily changing their hair color. And so it is through self-knowledge that we change our beliefs. Because most of our beliefs, at least according, again, to, to the science that I've read, most of our beliefs are just ex post, ex post facto justifications for trauma or difficulties that we experience very early in life. So I was very keen to put those arguments out there. I was not of the opinion that they would work, but I'm always willing to be proven wrong. And if people had put stuff on the line and said, wow, you know, I changed 10 people's minds with that passionate speech. I sent this speech to 20 people and they, you know, 15 of them came back and said, oh, my God, that, right. Then I would have been like, well, I guess the science is not that great. <laughs> but if people can be given a very clear and powerful moral message but don't change their minds, it's because they're immune to empiricism. And immunity to empiricism arises from early childhood trauma. And so this is why my argument has been self-knowledge, self-knowledge, self-knowledge is the key. This is why politics will not save us. This is why economics will not save us. This is why philosophy alone will not save us. 
the better argument does not reach the irrational mind. And the irrational mind can only be healed through self-knowledge. It cannot be healed through abstract rationality. So I hope that makes some kind of sense. Well, I agree with you about self-knowledge, and that's one of those things that you've got to find for yourself. Nobody can give it to you. But I was wondering, if your political views are established in early childhood, how does the rebellion that manifest itself in just about everybody when they hit adolescence fit into that because everybody when they hit adolescence generally turns 180 to what they believed for the years prior and suddenly rebel against everything their parents every authority figure that they have thrust at them and so on and so forth do you think that's true? I mean, do you, I don't know statistically how oh, many people absolutely. who are raised. Well, hang on, sorry. Just how many people who are raised fundamentalist Christian go through an atheist phase when they're teenagers, or how many people who are raised atheist go through a fundamentalist Christian phase when they're teenagers? I don't think too many. Have you ever noticed how many people have been raised again, like you said, fundamentalist Christian and all that kind of thing that instantly turn goth occultist <laughs> once they hit high school? Well, I don't think it's that many because otherwise the schools would be entirely full in certain sections of of goth people, and the goth people remain a significant minority. Um, I I think that the rebellious – Because a lot of them are afraid to do it in public because, oh my god, if my folks ever found out, they'd kill me. Right. I mean I think that there's a lot of anger that occurs in in teenagers, and I think a a lot of it is is fair because I think there's a transition – that goes on, and I'm not speaking about all parents, I'm just speaking about the typical template for parenting around the world. Uh, the p- parenting around the world uh, relies on, on punishment, and the punishment is either you know, personal or it's jail or government or whatever. I mean, there are still parents out there, uh, I've had conversations with people about this, who when they were five or six, right, if they were disobeying their mom, their mom would say, I'm going to call the cops and they're going to come and take you away and throw you in jail. Yeah, I heard that one myself. Yeah, I mean, this is that—that that is beyond ugly. That is absolutely vicious, and that and is a actually, a deliberate hack of the parent-child bond. Well, uh, Steph, and, you and uh, I have actually had a conversation before. Um, I was an adopted child at X number of weeks, long before I ever became self-aware and all that kind of thing. And my father has never hit me with an open hand in his life. But uh, I got smacked around a whole lot, and, you know, there's a whole bunch of other nonsense, including a motorcycle crash and a whole bunch of other stuff that was thrust at me. And I'm actually surprised I've managed to remain as level-headed as I am. Well, I think that's, like, I think that's I have, great. But that's, you know, despite – right, so, so parents will punish either with the threat of police or they will punish with the threat – of hell, or they will punish with the threat of spanking, or they will punish with the threat of being sent to your room without dinner, or they will punish with the threat of a timeout, or they will take away your toys. I mean, this is... Wait till your father gets home. Wait till your father gets whatever. I mean, and and to to be fair, you know, I hate saying that because it makes it sound like I'm not being fair other times, but but to be fair, because I misunderstood about this a lot of times, I, I can understand why parents do that, because they're not being given the right tools by philosophers. Uh, and by psychologists uh, to 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 help them uh, uh, to to deal better, right? So they have some options other than than punishment, uh, but but punishment is is the way that that parenting parenting works. 
and punishment when you're a child relies on the fact that you're that you are smaller than your parents and and dependent upon them and then when you get to be a teenager your parents can no longer physically intimidate you because you're bigger or younger or stronger or leaner <laughs> Uh, you are the $6 million man to their half lava up terror, <laughs> uh, trying, um, Terminator robots. And then when you're a teenager, well, things have to change. Right? Physical intimidation, size, and dependence are no longer enough. And so what happens is – what generally happens is then a, a heavy weight is switched to like a really heavy moralizing that goes on. Uh, endless lectures about responsibility and adulthood and maturity and empathy and blah, 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 blah. I mean, I remember these. When I got into my teenage years, oh, my God, the moralizing. Oh, my God, I was given my eye teeth to, to have only been a Catholic when it came to the moralizing in my government-run school. I mean, we just got – I mean, a friend of mine I mentioned this before on the show. A friend of mine, he just wrote – he was he, you know, he's very visually gifted and he just – did a couple of little cartoons in in the corner of his book. Why? Because he was so goddamn bored in school. And the teacher found out about this and literally tore him apart verbally in front of the class for like 10 or 15 minutes straight about respect for property and respect for books and respect for the public school education and respect. Like, are you fucking kidding me? You're talking about respect and you're verbally humiliating this kid for a couple of pictures? I mean, how the hell does the book get more respect than a flesh and blood child? And I also knew that his home life was completely wretched. His, um, his father was quite mad and his mother was dying of cancer. Of course, nobody ever asks, uh, asks these kinds of questions. You're like, why, why is the child bored? What's wrong with our system that the child is more interested in doodling than he is in listening to or participating in the acquisition of knowledge? Or what's wrong with this child's household? That uh, that he is this way, but no, you get this moralizing, and I remember the same moralizing come from coming from the principal who sat us down, uh, you know, and and he gave us a thesaurus and he talked literally for twenty minutes. I saw, I was watch the clock because you know I I knew that I knew that this story was going to kind of be helpful one day, and I didn't want to you know kid kid time seems forever, but this is I guess I just went to grade seven, so I was twelve I think or twelve or twelve and a half, and he gave us this massive lecture about respect for this gift, this present, like he was being so magnanimous. Of course, he didn't pay for the fucking thing. <laughs> it was taken from our parents' hides at gunpoint. Uh, but it was all, there's this lecture and words and language and respect for words, respect for the books, and he expects these to be pristine, to be kept in great uh, quality, no doodling, no this. And as I just remember thinking even at the time, you guys are so fucking interested in the quality and pristineness of these books. How about our brains? How about our souls? How about our lives? You got us for six or seven hours a day. Where is the respect for our minds, for our choices, for our preference, for our desires, for our wants, for what excites us to learn? No. It's all about the books. And don't spill things on the cafeteria floor. And don't come to school with a hole in your clothes. I remember I had a Disco Sucks t-shirt. had to wear it inside out. Because that was a big problem. The moralizing that went on. And... When you begin to really turn the emotional screws when it comes to moralizing teenagers, they get resentful. So that was the end uh, of that. Um, I think that this this moralizing, I, I mean, I'm sure it's still it's still going on. This uh, switching from physical intimidation to just, you know, roll you up in a heavy, wet tar carpet 
of moral condemnation. Uh, that seems to be very much the pattern of uh, societies. Uh, in other words, they have to go from the physical intimidation of size and power to the verbal abuse of hypocritical moralizing. Um, and, and there is a, an implicit humiliation, I think, for the kids where you know books and school property and, and all of this, everything, every piece of atom and every consciousness of an adult is infinitely more important and deserving of respect than children themselves. And that, I think, is really, really tough. And so I think that there's a you know, fair amount of, of resentment. I don't know that uh, it then immediately translates into some sort of philosophical issue. Uh, it's just emotionally vile. I mean, to be moralized by people who you, that you do not respect is a catastrophically bad situation. You know, <laughs> I'm not a big favor of government bans, but I'd be a big favor, I'd be a, a, in quite a bit of favor of banning people from moralizing who were hypocrites because to have hypocrites moralize children is a very, very, very dangerous situation because it whittles away and erodes the respect that children have for the general ethics of society and then they grow up to be Wall Street bankers and so on. <laughs> so, Well, public school teachers talking about respect for property when they're actually stealing from, when they're actually stealing from the very children that they're teaching – to get their benefits and their pensions, uh, none of which has been paid for. Medicare. What is the one for the old? I think it's the one that's for the old. Is that Medicare or Medicaid? I think it's Medicaid. Let me just see. Medicaid. I should know this. I should know. It's one of these things. I never got it right to begin with. And therefore, um, no, it's Medicare. So people say, well, I paid into Medicare and therefore I should get those benefits. But the average person has paid thirty or $40,000 into Medicare and is going to get hundreds of thousands of dollars of benefits out of it. And so, um, yeah, it's just funny to me that the same teachers who were lecturing us about respect for property are now hoovering up our money at the gunpoint uh, because they've retired and they want all this free stuff. And uh, again, this is just the kind of hypocrisy. And this is where a, a chilling amount of youth nihilism comes from, which is I've been morally lectured to by people who are unbelievable, stone-deep, ass-clown hypocrites. And therefore, I'm going to throw the baby out with the bathwater and assume that all morality is hypocritical manipulation. And uh, it's a shame. All right. Did we get the other person on the line? I am here. All right. Uh, hi, Stefan. So I have a question regarding anarchy. So uh, can you okay. hear me, by the way? Yeah. Okay. So so my question is, um, so anarchy is basically uh, the recognition that force and coercion shouldn't be used to to rob our lives basically right and that the currently that the state is the main institution by which uh basically coercion and, and force is being uh, uh inflicted in, into into others is that correct well again there's this association historically that anarchy is about the state anarchy is not about the state Anarchy means without rulers, and without rulers applies more so in the home than it does in, in the state, right? So um, uh, it is violations of the non-aggression principle that anarchy opposes. The universalization of the non-aggression principle and a respect for property rights is what you know a certain enactment of philosophy called anarchy opposes. Uh, when you 
when you give up spanking, you are becoming an anarchist in the home because you are no longer intimidated, intimidating and ruling over your children. When you give up punishment as a parent, you are becoming an anarchist. When you yeah. no longer submit your children to public schools, you are becoming uh, an anarchist because you are rejecting the initiation of force. You're uni- universalizing the non-aggression principle. So and this is why I've always focused on anarchy in the home. I know this sounds like I'm going to bring anarchy into your home. It sounds like I'm lobbing Molotov cocktails in through your to your civilized dinner parties. But no, I mean, anarchy is – I mean, who cares about anarchy in the state? Can't do anything about it. And the state is only an effect to the family anyway. So let's bring the non-aggression principle into where we live and reject it and reject those who support it. And that to me is um, is what real anarchy is. But um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I see. So yeah, that's where actually where my actually my, my question was going to basically because um, so right now I mean it's easy to see the violence. It's easy to well maybe not so easy, but for for people who who are aware of it, it's it's not uh, it's not hard to say okay yes the state is the main uh, way of inflicting um, uh, force into some some into other people, right? But once once the state I'm sorry again. Goes I, away, I I'm afraid I, I sorry I can't I can't agree with you there. The state is the largest way that adults are threatened with force, but the state is not the largest enactor of force within society. You would say it's parents. Well, I mean, it's it's people. I mean, people who hit their children are the ones violating the initiation of force the most in society. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I mean, that, that's, I mean, 90% of people or 80 to 90% of people in, in many districts are hit by their parents, but not 80 to 90% of people go to jail. Uh, well, yeah, I didn't think of it that way because where my question was going, but I guess maybe that doesn't make sense anymore, is, you know, if, you know, once we get rid of the state, then how do we know, how do we see coercion in, in our society? Right? Because it's not going to go away. I mean, and I guess what you're saying is, I mean, the first place that we have to look at is parenting, even before we look at the state. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we have to look at parenting and see once we have peaceful parenting, there will be no need for the state and the state will be entirely obvious, right? Because the state is there, it claims, to protect us against violent people. Well, with peaceful parenting, you will have almost no violent people, which is why, you know, we don't really buy um, insurance against being kidnapped by Bigfoot. Right. Could it happen? Yeah, Bigfoot could exist. Space aliens could exist and they could be abducting us, but I don't think you'd get a lot of people to buy insurance. I mean, sure, there is some people who will buy insurance for it, but it's not a big problem in, in society. So there will be a small number of violent people, uh, people who've got brain tumors or, or, or other kinds of, of issues, um, uh, and uh, they you know, are going to be, be violent, but this is going to be unheard of. Like, you know, like a murder a month in the world, I would imagine, would be reported in, in these situations. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't looking so much into, like, cases like murder and rape because, like, everybody knows that that's coercion, right? Everybody no, but that's that what that we think. Sorry, but that's what people think the state is going to protect us from. And with peaceful parenting, right, I've done a video called How to Make a Monster. I could do another hundred videos on that. You can just watch the A&E biographies of, you know, Charles Manson and uh, Jeffrey Dahmer and, and all of these people. I mean, their childhoods were all unbelievably horrendous and, and violent and, and abandoned. Uh, and so, you know, it, it takes a huge amount, right, to uh, to make a violent person is, is harder than making a diamond. The heat and pressure that's required to make a violent person is extreme. 
And so will you really and feel the need for police yeah. if no one has ever stolen from you and there's no violence in your neighborhood? You'll just say, well, you know, I don't really think we need this thing anymore. Yeah, 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 I see. Yeah, I was going more into the direction of other things that may not seem as coercion, but they actually are. Like, I don't know, like maybe prostitution. You might not say it's not coercion, maybe it's voluntary, but, you know, like you have, you know, a girl to be stereotypical, you know, selling her services, but she she's doing that because... You know, like like you pointed out in one of your podca- podcasts, is that because she herself was, she inf- she was uh, inflicted uh, force, or she was probably raped, or went through some horrible. Yeah, I mean, hours. sorry to interrupt, but Gabor Mate in in the realm of hungry ghosts uh, reports. I mean, it's not scientific, but it's not unimportant. Uh, he reports that, of course, prostitution is heavily associated with drug use, and uh, drug use is heavily associated with child abuse. So he didn't find any drug addicts in the downtown uh, east side of, of Vancouver, where he practices. He said uh, all of the female drug addicts, all of the female drug addicts were raped as children, all of them, in his multi-decade career, every single one of them. So... If we do not have the initiation of force against children, it seems inconceivable that we would have drug addiction, prostitution, these kinds of things. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I didn't think of it that way, you know, because, you know, to me it was like, yes, okay, we get rid of the state, but then it doesn't mean that people are still going to try to use coercion, right? And now if people are aware that everybody is... Uh, in tune with the mantra of like the state is evil, then they will not use a state mechanism, but they will use something else, you know? Uh, yeah, look, I, I, I can share with you just for a minute or two. I want to make sure we get to the other callers. And these are great questions, of course, and I'm sorry to, to be interrupting. I really do apologize. But, no I, I, you know, where I think the greatest danger to a truly free society will come from uh, and this, I think, will erode over time is, is sophistry, is, is demagoguery. Right, so uh, <laughs> um, language was invented to enslave. Uh, morality was invented to enslave. I, I really, really believe that. I, I'm not saying I can prove it, but uh, I think there would be ways of establishing it, and I'll make the case uh, in a podcast series coming up. But language was invented and uh, to, to control and enslave, and particularly morality. Morality was invented to reduce competition from the ruling class by teaching the slave classes that violations of property were wrong, which of course is a ridiculous thing to teach someone who's your slave, right? But uh, when the criminals win, they quickly found that they could invent morality to reduce the competition uh, against them. And this is particularly true when people get older, right? So if you live in a a brute force society, when you get old, you're toast, right? Because you can't compete with the young people because they're younger and stronger, right? And so you have to invent, obviously, a god who's going to punish the young people, and you have to become very verbally skilled and adept. So people who are very verbally skilled and adept. Yeah, have... I mean, I was, I was listening to a, I was listening to a uh, a comment by I think Walter Block some time ago, where he was saying that because he, he was almost uh, uh, saying that uh, slavery is not necessarily immoral. That it, and through the circumstances, it's okay for people to sell themselves. And I was like, that's kind of weird to me, you know, like. You know, it still seems to be coercion on, on you know, on, on the part of somebody who is selling themselves into slavery. And yeah, I, I, just, I, I think so this is, um, it, it's a fine abstract debate, but in a free society, no one's going to sell themselves into slavery. 
I mean, that's just sure. not going to happen because because it's you, you're going to be so much less productive as a slave than if you're a free person, right? So nobody's going to want to buy someone who then has no motive to con- like if I sell myself to be your slave, then you have to take care of me for the rest of my life. You got to provide me uh, food, shelter, healthcare, clothing. You name it, right? And and if I want to get married, then you have to make sure you pay for my marriage and and you pay for my kids and and I mean all of that, right? You, if I'm going to sell myself into slavery, you got to take care of me. That's the contract for the rest of my life. Why the hell would anybody want that contract? <laughs> it would be crazy. Well, because they don't have. Because, it, like for instance, if you go to third world country, they don't really, they don't have anything. So selling themselves into slavery might be appealing to. No, them. but that's why I said in a free society, right? In a free society. You would – I mean nobody's going to be – nobody's going to want to take on a 40 or 50 or 60 or 70-year obligation to take care of someone because no one's going to sell, sell themselves into slavery and say, you now have the right to beat me if I don't work, right? That's just not going to happen. But so, so you know, you'd have to not beat the person and you'd have to pay, pay all their bills until the end of time. Why would you just go hire someone, you know, pay them an hourly wage and be done with it at the end of the day? You don't, no one's going to take on 50 or 60-year moral obligations to take care of slaves. Uh, because, you know, what if you buy a slave and then tomorrow he develops cancer? Well, you've then got massive medical bills and no work. Or what if you, you buy a slave and he's like, oh, great, now I've got all my stuff paid for for the rest of my life, so I'm just going to relax and, you know, pretend to work or whatever, right? You've got no recourse. There's no way that people are going to get into slave contracts in a free society. It, it's just not going to happen. Uh, it's a fine theoretical blah, 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 right? But, this, you know, I think we've got more important things to deal with. Uh, people are just not going to get... In, involved in, in slave contracts. Nobody's going to want to take on that kind of liability. Uh, plus, if you own the person, what if your slave goes and rapes someone? Well, you're liable for that. Nobody's going to want to take on that kind of risk when you can just hire someone for 10 bucks an yeah, hour and be done. Yeah, at the I think the, the, the examples that I've, that I've heard uh, are things like, not necessarily within the most of that society, but people in that society, like you can go into Africa, let's say, and then, you know, there is somebody there, some warlord or some local thug who is selling you, uh, you know, uh, uh, people into just I don't know whatever mine, you know, mining some minerals or whatever. I mean, you know, and I understand what you're going to say. You're going to say yes, but you know, Africa is not a free society, so it doesn't apply. Yeah, that's why. I mean, I'm talking about in a free society. I don't care what contracts people get into in a slave society because the issue there is the state. The issue is there are not the contracts that people are coming up with to survive the state. The issue is the state. So um, I just, I, you know, I've heard this argument before. Uh, I think it's, you know, fine to chat about over dinner or whatever, but I just, it, you know, it's really not important and certainly is not going to occur uh, in, a, in a free society. So, Did you have a, another question? Uh, I think we've got another call to get to. I have lots of questions, but <laughs> I know you for all the time. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. You're always welcome to call back. These are excellent, excellent points to right. raise. But uh, thank, thank you. you so much. Uh, we have actually two more people online if we are able to get to them. Let's have them talk simultaneously, one into each ear, and I will answer out of two orifices to be chosen by them. Sorry. Go ahead. Left and right nostril. All right. Um, <laughs> oh, that's very kind of you. Next up. <laughs> if you can do it, I'll be impressed. Uh, next up is John. John. Hey, Stefan. How are we doing? Great. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm going to make this quick, just like last week. Then we got other callers. Um, right. You know, I remember my first introduction, formally into political philosophy, was this book. Hey, pardon. Go ahead. Uh, 
you know, my, my first introduction to political uh, philosophy was this book that I picked up. And, and in that book was an idea of political philosophy I found very intriguing. It was um, John Rawls's uh, social contract. And um, th this social contract pretty much stated uh, that, you know, people stand behind this veil of ignorance, and uh, that's how we create a just society. So, for example, people behind this veil of ignorance wouldn't create a law that, say, panders to the aristocracy when they could very much end up uh, impoverished and, and weakened. And I, and I thought it was a very interesting concept, you know, all these people coming together and really developing this equal society solely based on the merit of they don't know where they're going to end up. Uh, and, of course, John Rawls is a well-known egalitarian. And I just wanted your thoughts on that uh, on that political tool and if that would kind of be somewhat of an ideal model, you know, to go against the state, because we know a big conversation here on this podcast regularly is statism and how, you know, the state is just too big and too oppressive and we, and we talk about, you know, certain ideals to combat the state. And, uh, you know, really just reading that political ideal when I was younger, it, it just seemed too utopian to me. And I, I just wanted your take on it, if it's at all plausible. Yeah, uh, just to re I've got, I've got a whole podcast on this in the series. You can just go to freedomainradio.com, uh, go to podcast, do a search. There's a, uh, so his theory of justice is saying, look, if we were floating and we didn't know before we were born, we were floating in some platonic new amenal realm before we were born. We didn't know whether we were going to be smart or dumb or rich or poor or whatever, privileged or underprivileged or whatever. We had no idea. Then what we would want is we'd want to hedge our bets. So we wouldn't want a system of pure egalitarianism in case we were born really smart and ambitious and, and wanted to do big things in the world and be Bill Gates or whatever. So we'd want a lot of opportunity. But at the same time, if we were born – I don't know, uh, with spina bifida or, or, you know, in really an un underprivileged environment, then we'd want to make sure that there were a certain amount of social safety nets in place so that we wouldn't fall through the cracks. And so this is why we have a sort of mixed economy. Uh, and that's why we have opportunity for people to make money and be ambitious and be whatever, right? But we also have a safety net for people who um, fall through uh, the cracks and, and so on. And so, I mean... I think it's an interesting argument. I think it has nothing to do with reality whatsoever. As a thought experiment, I, you know, I have no problem with thought experiments. I think they're fun. But you know, if you actually start talking about uh, the real world, then you are in a different situation. So you know, the, way the, the real world argument for John Rawls is, is, comes from a, quite a famous book called The Theory of Justice that I actually read as an undergraduate. Um, <laughs> his, uh, his argument would be, okay, so let's say before, before we're born, we're floating in some platonic realm. And we don't know where we're going to be born. So would it be great, would it be the best possible system to give a small minority of people all the capacity to initiate force in the world? And to print the type whatever they wanted into their own bank accounts, to declare war at will, to throw people in jail, and is that the system that we want? See, everyone talks about uh, – you know, this is a preview of a speech I'm going to give later this summer, so I'll just – but I'll keep it really brief. Everyone talks about – the products of the state. Nobody talks about the machinery of the state, right? So everybody talks about stuff which is supposed to come rolling out of the conveyor belt called the state. You know, justice, equality, fairness, uh, healthcare, uh, uh, charity, welfare, education, all of these boxes are supposed to come out of the state in this conveyor belt. And all people do is say, well, we got roads coming out in a box. We got healthcare. We got uh, we got uh, special ed programs. We've got disability pensions. We've got social security. All of these things are coming out in boxes. Don't you want these things? 
And so he says, well, you've got the welfare, but you've also got protection of property rights for opportunity. These are boxes coming out of the state. And everyone talks about these boxes coming out of the state. And nobody talks about what's actually inside the machine. And if all you do is focus on the boxes coming out of the states and you don't focus on how they're actually produced, well, <laughs> that's fine. That's like – but that's not how I was taught when I was growing up. When I was taught when I was growing up is it kind of matters whether your shoes are made by goddamn slave labor or not. That kind of matters. And I was really taught to be aware of the social or moral costs of the production of goods and services. You know, is it environmentally friendly? Uh, is it slave labor? Is it a tyrannical regime? Are they blood diamonds? It matters where your stuff comes from. It matters how it is produced. And all these little boxes coming out of the state are coming out of a system of universal violence. I don't really care what comes out. I don't care the quality of the cotton that is grabbed from the slaves' bloody and calloused hands. I don't care how nice the shirt is. I don't care what color it is. I don't care how many buttons it is. I don't care if it's got those Seinfeld puffy pirate shoulders. I only care that there's somebody standing with a whip over the slaves. And so with John Walls, he's just looking at a couple of things coming out of this bloody machinery and saying, well, those things are good, aren't they? Isn't it good to help the poor? Isn't it good to have opportunity for the ambitious? Who gives a shit? It doesn't matter because it's nothing to do with how the system works. First of all, those things aren't actually produced. And, and secondly – if you're not willing to address the violence that is at the heart of statism, then you are attempting to be a geographer of fairy tales. You are attempting to be a physicist in a video game. You're in entirely in a made-up landscape that has nothing to do with reality. And you may make it internally consistent, and it may be compelling for you, and it may be lots of fun to make up a language that they spoke in the northeastern corner of Middle Earth. But just don't claim it has anything to do with reality. And, you know, that, that's kind of my thing, you know, when I read uh, the idea. It was, it was very fascinating to me at the time, again, still being very naive to uh, political philosophy and, and actually being introduced to the world of philosophy, you know, in general. That's when I really started to grow uh, more intimate with it. And, uh, you know, reading it, it, it's something I discuss with friends, and I, I think you said it perfectly. It, it's, it's a damn fine thought experiment. But I, I think that's really where it's confined because really just thinking about it for me, I don't really see any real-world applications, and, and if it did, I don't really see those applications you know, bringing any higher returns to the people. Because again, the, the veil of ignorance, it, it's a nice idea, but that's really all I think you know, it's, it's going to stay as an idea, because I just don't see you know, you know, the circumstances arising where that veil is even remotely plausible. But I, I just wanted to shoot that idea. Oh, no, sorry, but also, it's no support for statism at all. I mean, it's interpreted as a support for statism, because you only get to be prominent in the media if you support the predations of the existing system, right? I did an interview last week. I haven't released it yet, where I basically talk about philosophers are famous because they support the state, and that's about it, which is why you've heard of um, Thomas Hobbes, but not Lysander Spooner, why you've heard of uh, Socrates, but not Kropotkin, or you've never heard that um, uh, Tolkien was an anarchist, or you've never heard of Murray Rothbard, at least for most people. And... So, but even if we accept that, okay, you know, we have a veil of ignorance, fantastic, then what we want is for some support if we're down on our luck, and we want some opportunity if we are up on our luck, fantastic. Then what we want is a, an anarchistic system with DROs that can help us in charities for those who are not covered by DROs, fantastic, that takes care of if we're on the down low, 
And then if we want the upside, well, well the sky's the limit because we live in a free society. But people just assume that even if we accept that argument that that means we then have to have a mixed economy, democracy, welfare state. But doesn't, that doesn't follow at all. That doesn't follow at all. I mean that follows as much as saying, well, some being may have created the universe and therefore I have to go to church on Sundays and eat wafers. I mean it, just, it doesn't follow at all. But people just assume that it follows because they like justifications for that which is, so they don't have to spend any moral courage opposing the immorality in their society. All right. Sorry. Again, we've got to move on because there are more questions. But, well, I, thank absolutely, you. Stefan. Thank you again so much for your time. Thank you. Great stuff. All right. Next up, we have Winston Smith. Hello, Hello Winston. sir. Hello. This is before uh, the rats or after the rats. Which, which Winston am I talking to? Pre-rodent or post-rodent? That's well, my, uh, my important question. Yeah. Well, I'm just from the Netherlands, and uh, my real name is Kars, but I use Winston Smith as a small uh, um, token to the work of George Orwell and his uh, character out of 1984, of course. Um, I had uh, two simple questions. I don't know if they really are simple or not, but um, I see the, the world is rather violent, and the rulers are really violent, and uh, it's all about a game of control to obtain control and to exercise control and to rule the world, basically. And my question is, this, is this natural? In other words, do you see this also in uh, nature with ants or lions or other creatures? And is it not just a natural part of humankind to have this ambition to rule everything? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think so. Uh, if you look at the primates, you can very easily make a violent, aggressive, dominant-seeking monkey. I mean, it's very easy to make. You, you separate the monkey from the mother and you traumatize it. And then, bingo, bango, bongo, you have a little furry Hitler on your hands. It's very easy to make. Uh, it, it, is, um, it is very easy to make a peaceful and cooperative monkey as well, at least among, among its own kinds, is you keep the monkey with the mother and you do not traumatize it. Uh, it's, it's very easy. Uh, sadly, uh, the, um, the boot-up system of primates is easy to program. It, it's shockingly easy to program. And this doesn't eradicate free will, uh, I believe, except in perhaps the most extreme cases. But um, it's, I mean, there's no such thing as monkey nature. Uh, it, it, the monkeys will adapt to the social cues and the economic cues of the environment. So in a system of violence, we assume that there's no social cooperation and that resources are incredibly scarce and everything is win-lose. In which case, you better come out of the womb with your teeth bared, ready to claw and have indiscriminate sex with as many female monkeys willingly or not as possible. Spread your seed as widely as possible because you have no way of guaranteeing that any particular investment in a child is going to pay off. On the other hand, if your mother is, is peaceful and, and stress-free and getting enough to eat, then you grow up programmed to come out not with bare teeth, but with open arms, and to cooperate and to invest in your own children significantly and so on. So it's, you know, there, there's no such thing as, as human nature. Human nature is something that we invent to excuse bad parenting, right? So we say, oh, well, I know a bunch of violent people, and that's human nature. No, no, that is bad parenting. But we, well, we, we uh, like to I think of human it, nature because yeah. it gets parents off the hook for what they've done. Yeah, I, I find your uh, research into uh, peaceful parenting uh, very encouraging and uh, uh, very useful as well. Uh, um, in my job, I am a swim teacher, and uh, and the approach I have is rather different than of my colleagues in this 
commercial swim school and it's a commercial school so parents can choose any other school if they want to you know and um, but i asked this question uh, mainly because if you uh, I, I, if i look back into history then i see a sort of uh, the, uh, the groups of people in their ratios like you have for instance you know one uh, percent uh, controlling you know the the dominant uh, the dominant minority as they call them themselves and then you got a, a huge, huge legion of uh, followers, basically. And uh, they, they are order takers. They are being abused by the system and by their peers, of course, like you say. And um, then there's a very small minority of, if you will, uh, thinkers, people that are able to give responses instead of reactions. And, um, and these ratios appear in history don't appear to shift much you know the the ratio between these three types of peoples um doesn't really appear to change much and i, I wonder I, I think it's really noble and i i'm working on this myself as well but i, I don't see any how do you say this um and i don't see any major shift coming you know in the, well but in the look future. i mean you sorry to interrupt but there's there's no particular mystery to this. I mean, we we have state schools, right? I mean, uh, and so with massive amounts of indoctrination, it's like saying, well, you know, a lot of communists seem to come out of Russia in the 1950s. Well, yeah, yeah, of course they did, because you were indoctrinated in that for 12 hours a day, and you were punished if you didn't spout it off. So yeah, of course. Uh, but if you want to look at proportions that have changed. Right. So how many black entrepreneurs were there in North America or in, in America in 1800? Well, maybe a dozen, a couple of slaves who'd, who'd invented stuff who were able to um, do a little bit of entrepreneurial work uh, at the permission of their masters. How many black entrepreneurs do you have in the, sort of the 1950s, 1960s? Well, a huge number. Still, still a significant number now. How many female doctors were there? in 1800. Well, not a whole lot. How many female doctors are there now? Well, my understanding is the majority of women in college now are, uh, sorry, the majority of students in college now are women, significant amounts of, of female doctors and so on. So these proportions are not based upon freedom. Now, if in a perfectly free society, you ended up after a couple of generations with this kind of stuff, well, you know, how many atheists were there in Norway in 1750? Well, one guy keeping his mouth shut, right? And now it's 70 to 80% atheist or agnostic uh, because, yeah. because it's no longer punished, right? So you, you don't want to mistake the prison for the field, right? You don't want to mistake the prison for the field. You always want to look at where compulsion is in human society before drawing all, any um, conclusions about what is called human nature. Yeah, that, that also uh, gets right into my other question, which was about um, – uh, why do people, uh, some people choose to rather pursue the truth or, you know, to um, to, to find some, uh, uh, yeah, to find out about reality, uh, true reality, instead of uh, choosing delusions? And, and, and why do other people don't have the courage to do this? And, and what does a, a passion, what does make a courage, uh, a, a person with courage, what does it, uh, what does give people passion about something, you know? There are so many people around that are sort of like, well, uh, you know, it's okay as long as I have some food in my mouth and uh, I have very small needs and uh, I'm happy as long as my simple needs of 
limited freedom and limited possibilities are met. And other people seem to have a rather big uh, ambition and a big need for freedom, for instance. Uh, I could not live, you know, in a, in a small confined place like a jail. I, I, would, I would really, you know, like, uh, <laughs> feel like, you know, but other people are rather content. Well, I would, sorry, yeah, um, I, this is, I mean, it's a big complicated question, and I'll just touch on it very briefly as so we're going to have one yeah. more caller. I go a bit over because I started late. But to me, moral ambition is all about memory. Right, I remember deeply and viscerally almost everything to do with my childhood, starting from about, I mean, certainly from before I could walk. So probably at about 10 months or a year, I remember almost everything about my childhood and my teenage years. I have a very strong memory that way. And because I can remember what it was like to not have anyone in the world stand up for the victims of child abuse, I want to do that. Because I remember how horrible it was. You know, if you really remember how hungry you were, one day, then it's kind of hard to deny food to other people, if that makes any sense. So if you were homeless and you really remember how bad it was mm -hmm. to be homeless and so on, some homeless guy asks you for some money, you're going to give him some money because you remember because you mm -hmm. self-empathize. And uh, a, a trauma uh, destroys memory. Um, now, as to why it didn't destroy mine is sort of another, another question, another issue. I think it had mostly to do with the fact that I was writing and journaling and, and keeping a diary, uh, which kept all of this stuff alive for me for, for many, many years uh, well, because it, I have such might, a strong – It might have sorry, destroyed your hair. hair. <laughs> yeah, it might have destroyed my hair, yeah. But um, so I think that – I think that for the majority of people, they either didn't go through any particular trauma – which, you know, I'm certainly possible within the family. It's a little tougher to believe that within public schools. Or they, they don't believe that other people went through trauma, which means that they lack empathy, right? So people who went through healthy families, they should be the ones who have the most sympathy for trauma, right? In the same way that I have a huge amount of sympathy for people in the third world because I just happened to be lucky enough to be born here. It was no virtue of mine that I was born in the West, uh, and so, uh, but so people who were brought up in healthy families should have the most empathy for uh, those who were traumatized. But that doesn't really seem to be the case. In fact, they often seem to take quite a bit of personal irrational pride in their own healthy functioning and just ascribe a lack of willpower or maturity to other people who were traumatized. But uh, and and so that's kind of a tough thing. But for people who were traumatized, if you remember it, then you're gonna reach out. You're, just, you're going to reach out. You're going to help other people. If you don't remember it, if you've got it blocked away, then you actually have to stay away from the entire topic and you have to shrink in your soul to the point where you're just standing in the middle of a minefield afraid to move a toe. That's my thought about it. I mean, it's certainly not a conclusive or um, perhaps even that wide-ranging an answer, but that is uh, that is my particular perspective. Somebody says, you know, well, I'm just well, happy actually, with my own little uh, things. I, my first question would be, a, well, uh, how, was, how was your childhood? Right? And, and how was your childhood is, is the most essential question uh, when it comes to philosophy as a whole. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, uh, your reply gave me uh, a very nice idea about, uh, you know, uh, instructing uh, of helping children to grow, in other words, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, providing with a, a manageable challenge. So um, maybe, for instance, you could say to a child, you know, oh, there are children in the world that face this and this and this. And you can say, well, uh, if you feel you're up to it, you know, we can try this for, uh, you know, uh, uh, for instance, two days without food. And, and, you know, if you agree to that, we can try to do that and you can feel how it feels how to be without food. And 
you are sort of like uh, offering them a challenge and they can choose to do the challenge or not. But this challenge will teach them, you know, how to how it is to be hungry, for instance. Yeah, there's something that um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote about in the Gulag Apicolago when a guard who'd been beating prisoners ended up being arrested and being beaten by other guards. And he, you know, literally sobbed and, and he said he had absolutely no idea how much it hurt to be beaten. Like he always thought that the, the prisoners he was beating when they screamed and, and begged him to stop, that they were just play acting, that they were just trying to appeal to his sympathy. He said he had no idea. No, I had no idea it hurt this much. I can't believe it, how agonizing that is. Well, will he be able to beat someone again? Probably not, because now he knows. He, he you know, he feels it. Uh, in, and that is, um, right. So, so <laughs> I mean, empathy for others does at least to some degree depend upon empathy for the self. And... So uh, there's there's lots of examples of, of this wherein until people have experienced some sort of catastrophe, they really don't don't empathize that much with others. I think that it, it's sad that it needs to get to that point. Uh, and unfortunately, it won't stop. I mean, it won't stop. In, I mean, and, and people will listen to libertarians and voluntarists and anarchists when the system is just really, really terrible. Hopefully by then it won't be too late. But, you know, if you don't learn by reason, you have to learn by better experience. So... I think that most people have gone through difficult childhoods of one sort or another, whether it's church or, or parents or school or something like that. You know, we, we've got – and we know that. We know that because the degree to which people are resistant to basic logical arguments like taxation is theft is the degree to which they've been traumatized. Uh, that is a – to me at least, that is a simple test. Can you understand a concept as simple as taxation is theft? And and if you can't, if you reject, if you get upset, if you get angry, if you avoid, if, then you're simply – showing trauma and the number of people who can rationally process taxation as theft is tiny and this is you know it's not the only test there could be lots of other other tests as well that to me i think is a fairly good one um because it has to do with violence and authority which is going to be particularly troublesome for people who've grown up with punitive authorities but that i think is um uh is is where society is so the fact that a lot of people um just want to lay low and and get through their lives you know as they say in the song easy live and quiet die uh, from room with a view well uh, i can uh, I, I can understand that and i mean I, i'm fine with that i, I mean I, I think i think i think it's kind of tragic and i think it's kind of being a free rider like i've never wanted to be a free rider in any way shape or form i've certainly never wanted to be a free rider on all the people i admire in the past who did great things morally who stood up who did the right thing um you know the people who stood up to the british the people who stood up to the aristocracy the people who stood up to various brutes, thugs, and warlords, and and uh, warlocks throughout history, uh, have bequeathed upon me uh, some significant liberties to have these kinds of conversations. I I've never wanted to be a free rider, and I've always wanted to contribute to that which I have benefited from, and that pay it forward thing I think is essential. If people don't want to participate in that, I can understand why. I mean, it can be tough, it can be difficult, and and it can be unpleasant, but um, then you're just taking from the buffet without cooking any souffles. I think that's a shame. Well, uh, Stefan, uh, I thank you very much for your uh, very kind and uh, lengthy replies. That, uh, yeah, uh, sorry, simple uh, question, ridiculously complicated answer as usual, but I hope that was helpful. <laughs> yeah, you gave me a really nice idea, and uh, it, it, it uh, helps me to, um, to help children to learn uh, in their swimming lessons. And uh, Though the discipline may be a little bit different, uh, uh, difficult to uh, maintain in the swimming classes uh, with a different style, of course, than the, the shouting and uh, 
and the, the verbal threatening uh, other teachers do. Um, you know, uh, with me there, the, the children have, you know, they don't know how to respond to my other approach. You know, I don't shout, I don't raise my voice too much, you know. And uh, so they have a difficult time to estimate, you know, if you really mean it or not, you know, and, uh, and if you're just, uh, um, uh, I think, tolerating them, you know. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, I feel I can talk to you for hours. So uh, I want to have uh, give other people also the the chance to have a little chat with you. So uh, I thank All you right. very much, and I wish you a very well evening. Thank you, Vincent. I appreciate that. And to somebody just asked for a documentary update. I just met with the project manager last week, and um, we are going to, well, I'm going to spend some money on it. Uh, unfortunately, because we live in well. We're in an economy with people who do video and animation. They got to eat, and volunteering is you know eats into their paycheck because most of them are eat what you kill, kind of pay, paid by the hour or paid by the job. So I'm going to have to throw some money at it. We've, we, I mean, we've got some we've got some progress, we've got some work done, but it's not progressing at the speed that I need. So I'm going to spend. And if you'd like to help me spend, uh, freedomainradio.com forward slash donate it would be greatly appreciated. All right, we got last caller. How are you doing, my friend? That's you, Mark. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Hello. All right, Stefan. Thank you for your How's time. How's it going? I'll, yeah, try and be uh, as brief as possible. Um, I did want to talk a little bit uh, about uh, government, um, if that's all right. Yeah, I think that falls within the parameters of the show. Yeah. Uh, well, basically, uh, government and the political system is all um, set up so that Satan can rule this world. That's why it's so uh, oppressive and why it's been uh, allowed and been given the, uh, the sword or the, uh, the force. So you're saying so that Satan can rule this world? Yes, that's right. So that Satan can rule the world, yeah. All right, so let's, uh, let's hear the case. Um, yeah, the, uh, God has allowed Satan rulership of this world because of the universal issue of sovereignty, that Satan has challenged God, and in reply, God has allowed uh, a, a short amount of time for Satan to try to prove his case, and therefore he's been given the reins of the political system, the religious system, and the commercial system to try to prove his uh, case. Okay, and uh, so God is letting Satan rule over the minds of children, is that right? Through school? Uh, yeah, you could say that. Um, yeah, no, you're the one who's saying it. Just, okay, do you think that's um, – is, is that fair to children? No, the whole system is not fair, no. Well, why would God put a not fair system in? Um, God – a very fair system whereby humans would live forever on a paradise earth. That was what God wanted in the past, and that's what He wants for the future, for His will to be done. Right, on but earth. obviously, sorry, obviously, I didn't disobey God by eating an apple or whatever, and neither do the children now. So, how are they morally responsible for what Adam and Eve did? Yeah, that's right. They're not morally responsible, and nor are you. You are you, and they, and me, and all humans are, are victims. We are the casualties in, in this war. Well, wait a sec. So, but God, He's all powerful, so He could prevent Satan from indoctrinating children, right? Uh, 
Yeah, that's right. And indoctrinating children with evil is is not good. So God, although he could, without any effort whatsoever, prevent this evil, is allowing this evil to continue. How How is that moral? Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, the morality I mean, just a, sorry, it, the reason it, I say this is, is God, in the Bible, God gives a commandment to the people, like the Good Samaritans, right? So there's the guy in the ditch bleeding and they all pass by and it's morally good to intervene when you can uh, to prevent an evil from occurring. And this was just an accidental evil. So if it's moral to intervene and prevent evil and God is not, it's not only not intervening to prevent evil, but is actively allowing it to happen. Uh, how is God obeying his own moral rules? Yeah, God does obey his own moral rules. Um, no, no, sorry, get... sorry, sorry to interrupt, sorry to interrupt. That is not a true statement. I mean, I hate to be pedantic, but, you know, God says thou shalt not kill, but during the flood, uh, God killed everyone except Noah and of half a zoo, uh, including, uh, including fetuses in the womb, uh, newborn babies. Uh, they all were murdered by God causing this um, this flood, right? So this is complete planetary genocide uh, from a being who says thou shalt not kill no you misunderstand God said to humans not to kill but he has the right to kill right so he does not obey the moral laws that he proposes isn't that just called hypocrisy uh, no because it it's a loving thing it causes us more harm uh, to I'm sorry sorry kill. can you just back up for a sec so killing newborn babies by the millions, um, killing humanity by the hundreds of millions, I guess, whatever the population was back then, uh, this genocide is, 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 a, is a loving act. That's the thesis? Yeah, that's right. Um, do, do you not have any problem with that thesis? Do you feel that's easy to understand and perfectly reasonable? Yeah, it's perfectly, it's easy to understand, yeah. Okay, and it, um, it so you, you, sorry, sorry, so, so telling human beings not to kill while murdering hundreds of millions of innocent innocent, right? The babies obviously are innocent. The fetuses are innocent. So there's no question that this is the mass slaughter of innocent children and babies. And you feel uh, that there's no problem calling that a loving act. And a moral um, Well, yeah, that was a consequence of their parents. So they... Yes, but that's, uh, that's not right. You understand that it's not moral to kill a baby for the actions of the parents, right? No, that's right. And so the justice is that those children will be given the opportunity to, uh, to live again. I'm sorry, be given the opportunity? So reincarnation? No, reincarnation is um, a Buddhist idea to come back as an animal. It's actually a resurrection, coming back to life as the original human being that you was, uh, using different atoms. Well, ultimately, we're changing every year anyway. Uh, so, but, so it's loving to murder children because the children can be resurrected? Uh, we're all in a dying condition. So in actual fact, the children um, were uh, killed via their parents' um, actions. They have the opportunity. No, 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 no. The, the children were killed by God's actions, not by their parents' actions. Their parents did not kill them. Their lives were God killed them. Yeah. Yeah, their lives were cut short. That's right. No, no, no. God murdered innocent children. Yeah. I mean, um, you got to at least be honest about what actually happened. It can't be reincarnation and their parents. God 
initiated floods which drowned, murdered of his own free will where he could have chosen differently against the very moral commandments he provides to mankind, God slaughtered millions and millions of entirely innocent children. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's right. Okay, good. And if you have no moral problem with that, then I don't really think that we can have a conversation because I'm dropping a rock out of my hand and you're saying, well, it's going upwards. And I, you know, philosophy can't bridge that gap. If you have absolutely no moral issues or, or no moral hesitations about the mass slaughter of millions of innocent children, I, you know, I, I, I don't, against the moral commandment that God hands out as virtuous, um, I, I don't really know what else to say. Yeah, but there, there are reasons behind this and everything will be put back right afterwards. So, um, the the reason why God's cut their lives short is because it's a demonstration of what God is about to do very soon. God is also going to kill lots of human beings very soon as well. So it was a, a precedent that was set uh, back no, then. No, I understand. And, and, and you say that Satan rules the world and you worship a deity that slaughters millions of innocent people. I think you might have your deities backwards. I think that who you call God may actually be the Satan that you're imagining, because I can't imagine anything more evil than slaughtering millions of innocent children. And so I can't imagine that that's um, – I mean, that's that's so stone evil that there's nothing to be said for it. Uh, this is a, a, a very nasty uh, and immoral story. And, you know, I'm sorry that, that you were raised in such a way that you view this with the moral confusion to think that even this as a story can contain any kind of virtue. I think it is a very uh, unfortunate thesis to maintain, to, to put it as mildly as possible. And, and look, I mean, I understand this is, you know, this is how you were raised. This is the, the belief system that you were brought up with. And, of course, the biggest predictor of, of religious belief is is geography and where you were born and in particular the family that you were born into. But the fact that, that there's not even a hesitation, like I've worked out a whole system of ethics that I think is pretty good and I still hesitate and I'm still like, oh, is it right? You know, let me see if I can fix it up. I mean, I believe stuff that is very much in the mainstream, the initiation of force, respect for property rights, the initiation of force is wrong, respect for property rights is good and, you know, rape and, and murder and theft and assault, these are all evil. And I've got a system of ethics that really supports all of this. And I'm still backtracking and still trying to figure that out. Uh, so I think that humility to say something may not be quite right in this whole situation, uh, I think is an important thing to, uh, to, to remember and to work with. If you have no capacity for doubt, even in the face of a moral, a possible moral question about the murder of millions of innocent children then this can't be a conversation. You understand? Because you're not open to any possible other perspective. This is going to be a monologue with you interrupting and then with, sorry, a monologue with me interrupting and then you continuing. Uh, so I don't think it's a very good, um, this is not a good venue yeah, for that kind of monologue. Yeah, I can understand why you're saying all of this, but you haven't allowed me an opportunity to explain the whole situation. You're just getting part of the picture. God, uh, well, so, sorry, some... sorry, but but if I'm sorry to interrupt, but if you have no moral problems with the murder thousands of years ago of millions and millions of innocent children, I don't know that, that there is no explanation that's that's further than that, that right? That, that yeah, there's no explanation you, that can go from word, from that. You're using the word murder, but actually, this is consequences. The death of the innocent children was the consequence of their. Uh, actions of their parents. The no, you see, this is why it's a monologue, because I've already explained to you, as you've already admitted, that the death of the children resulted from the, the, the choice and power of God, not 
The, the parents did not kill the children. God killed the children, right? So and, this is why it can't be a dialogue because you're not using the correct terms even by your own definition. God killed the children. Okay. And it's certainly, even if God says, well, it's the parents' fault. The parents did bad things and therefore I'm going to kill the children. That's not moral, right? That's not moral. Okay. We don't There's put the a, child of a murderer in jail. There, there is going to be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. So even these ones that have uh, died, we're all in a dying condition anyway. So yes, you're right. They did die at uh, possibly two days old or whatever the age. Um, but they were going to die at 70 or whatever the age they would have got to. Um, they were in a dying condition. Now, this is all as a result of Satan's attack on God's sovereignty. So God has allowed suffering and he has allowed in, injustice uh, because of this attack. Um, the best illustration that I can think of is that of a classroom situation whereby a, um, a rebellious student says to the, t to the teacher, who says that you're number one? I think that I could do a better job. And in fact, I think you're a dictator. So the, the teacher could act like a dictator and throw the rebellious student out of the classroom. But if he had done that, not only would he be acting like an unloving dictator and a hypocrite, but he would also, uh, there were other students in the classroom who saw what he'd just done. And they could, in effect, accuse the teacher of saying, uh, and say to them, you're just trying to nip it in the bud that our friend... Okay, I understand the metaphor. Sorry to interrupt. Let me ask a question or two. Did yeah. God know when he created Lucifer that Lucifer was going to rebel? No. He didn't know that? No, he didn't. No. So he's not all-knowing? Uh, he is all-knowing. Yes, he is all-knowing, but he chose not to know that. He chooses not to use that ability on the, the majority of occasion. Wait, sorry. So he's, he, he's all-knowing, so he knows everything. So how can he know everything and then not know something? Yeah, it, well, he chooses not to use that ability of foreknowledge. He has the ability of foreknowledge. It's a bit like listening to, we're, we're being hit by radio waves, but we, we have the ability with the use of a radio to receive that information. But at the moment, we're choosing not to use that ability. Okay, Similarly, so, but God, if, if God, sorry, if it was possible, sorry to interrupt, sorry to interrupt. Let me, let me just keep going. So if it was possible for God to know what Lucifer was going to do ahead of time, then Lucifer obviously didn't have free will. Because if God just tuned in the radio and, you know, five years from now, Lucifer's going to rebel, going to cast him down to hell, he's going to be called, oh, he's going to be called Satan and blah, 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 right? Then obviously he didn't have a choice because God could have known ahead of time or, or you know, could it, the knowledge was available to God what Lucifer was going to do in five years. So to punish yeah, Lucifer for something which he did not have any choice about uh, is despotic, right? Obviously, I mean, it's like it's like punishing a rock for falling down a hill after you've pushed it. I mean, it's it's not very sane, right? Well, you're talking about a couple of things here. You're talking about fate and determinism, but God um, gives us free will by not looking into the future to dis to see uh, actions in the future. So. That's what I'm saying. On most occasions, he has no cause to look into the future, and that is the gift of free will. And in regards to Satan— I'm sorry, Satan, but just philosoph sorry, philosophically, um, if I choose not to look up where Descartes 
is located, that doesn't change where it is located, right? So if, if I avoid knowledge, that doesn't change reality. It doesn't change the future, right? So if I have a box which uh, uh, says what the stock price of Apple is going to be in three days from now, and I don't open it, right? That that doesn't change. I mean, the, the knowledge is still there, right? So, yeah, uh, so, so so it doesn't say that we get free will because God doesn't process knowledge that that is available to Him. I mean, that doesn't change anything because the knowledge is still valid. If he, you know, it's there. Like if I don't tune yeah, into a right. radio station, that doesn't change what people are saying on the radio station, right? No, that's right. You're absolutely right in all that you're saying. It's absolutely 100% correct. But God chooses not to look into that. He chooses, he deliberately chooses not to use that ability. He can, he can find out what we're going to do tomorrow, but he chooses not to. He gives you. That is the gift of free wills. It's a bit like a, a landlord might have a key to a property, but he gives you privacy by not using that key. Yeah, well, a key is access to a location, not not certain knowledge. I mean, look, I, I appreciate the, the sophistry of your responses. I'm afraid I will have to, to cut this a little short because this is really is a philosophy show, not uh, a show about um, – whatever it is you're talking about. But uh, I certainly do appreciate the, the call. In. And, you know, I, I must appreciate the equanimity with which you put forward this information. It's really, I mean, it really is quite impressive. I think you're, you're quite a force of nature in your own way. I, uh, I mean, I almost envy, I mean, I must say, I mean, to be perfect, I almost envy this level of, of confidence and security in, in what it is that you're saying. I mean, for me, philosophy is a lot about doubts and, and questions and uncertainty and, and continuing to look. The fact that you can square these circles with such equanimity within your own mind i i really find i mean it's actually both scary and impressive <laughs> if that makes any sense yeah fair enough but they're not actually squares and circles it, it's the truth it's, the reason why you're viewing it as squares and circles is because you don't understand so if you allowed me time i could make it understandable for no you, so you absolutely you... couldn't make it understandable because um uh, you're saying that i can't uh, see it well, because I, I'm not on the inside. I would say that you can't see how contradictory all of this stuff is uh, because uh, no, it's a high wire I'm act, right? I mean, to, to, to pick any part of the sweater apart is, is going to make the whole thing fall apart. But listen, appreciate the call in. Uh, it's always enjoyable yeah. to um, to discuss these these particular topics. And um, I just want to thank the listeners for uh, for a great show, uh, a really fascinating and enjoyable show. As always, um, I love the. The, 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 the spread of topics that we have access to in this show, I think, is just, is just wonderful. Uh, and I look forward to meeting more listeners uh, down at Freedom Fest um, next week. I'll be in Vegas next week. And looking forward to everyone. I will be speaking in late July in Vancouver. And then I may be speaking in the States in September. We're just working that out. Uh, I'm going to be on another show in July. And then, of course, please do not forget Libertopia.org where I will be master of ceremonies. Master of Bation was a time, it was a title, unfortunately, that I could not get past the uh, rabid Stalinist censors. But um, that is uh, libertopia.org. That's in October. And um, posting more information, I guess, about the private Freedom Aid Radio Island Venture, which should be very cool. Uh, and... Uh, Thanks again, everyone, so much. FreeDomainRadio.com forward slash donate if you would like to help out. And have yourselves a perfectly wonderful, wonderful week. I will talk to you guys soon. And thanks a million, everyone, for making this show everything that it is.